You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Les Klinger is the preeminent scholar of Sherlock Holmes. He's the author of the annotated Sherlock Holmes with Laurie R. King. He previously edited A Study in Sherlock, stories inspired by the Sherlock Holmes canon. He's currently working with Laurie R. King on a sequel in the company of Sherlock Holmes. Thank you for speaking with me, Les. My pleasure. Les, you've recently filed a motion against the Conan Doyle estate. Tell us about how copyright law currently works in the United States and what the situation that you're facing right now is. Sure. Well, in, in general, I mean, copyright now extends for 95 years after a work is published. There are 60 Sherlock Holmes stories. 50 of them were published prior to 1923. There is a clump of stories, 10 stories, that were published in 1922 and through 1927. Uh, Actually, a little earlier than that, but through 1927. Ten of the 60 stories remain in copyright. What that means is that if you wish to publish one of those stories, you need to obtain a license from the owner of the copyright. The owner of the copyright is uh, the Conan Doyle Estate Limited, This is a company based in England owned by um, collateral family members. These are not direct descendants of Arthur Conan Doyle. These are cousins and so on. I did that when I published my new annotated Sherlock Holmes. We included the ten copyrighted stories, and I paid a substantial license fee for that. However, uh, the controversy that's arisen has to do with writing new stories about Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, the Baker Street Irregulars, Mrs. Hudson, etc. The law in the United States, I believe, and I believe it's well supported, is that where you have a, a series of stories that are sort of part in and part out of copyright, that if the predominant characteristics of the characters are established in the public domain works, then the characters are public domain. That is, anyone, I believe, should be permitted without having to obtain a license to write a new story about Sherlock Holmes or Dr. Watson or any of those other people that I've mentioned. Nonetheless, the Conan Doyle estate has asserted that it has the right to stop people from writing new material. And in the past they've basically been able to use the sort of the bully pulpit to get their way. It's less expensive, and the the estate has intelligently made it less expensive to get the license than to fight. So people like CBS TV, uh, Warner Brothers, I suspect uh, PBS, I don't know that for sure, um, and certainly other book authors have obtained licenses from the Conan Doyle estate rather than spend the time and effort and money to to fight about this. Lori and I talked this over, and we didn't want to get a license for the first book we did, but Random House insisted that they didn't want to go through a legal battle and they were going to get a license. But this time we said enough's enough, and we're, we're actually in a 
earlier place in the publishing process. With Random House, we'd already the book was already in print. Here, the book hasn't been published yet, and in fact, the publisher, Pegasus Books, said, "Well, I can't publish it if you're going to, if you're not going to get a license, because the Conan Doyle estate threatened to block distribution of the stories through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and so on, and that that was just obviously intolerable for a publisher they, they, to publish a book and not be able to sell it." That's a problem. You know, it, it, one of the things that I find really interesting is the 95 years. That's an awful long time. How did it get to be so long after the publication? It started out, I believe it was originally, once upon a time, it was even 30 years after publication, then 50, then 70. The last round, the so-called Bono Act, Sonny Bono was the original sponsor of the bill, which most people understand was done largely at the behest of, of Disney, who wanted to extend the copyright on Mickey Mouse, uh, pushed it out to 95 years, and actually revived the copyright on certain works that had fallen into the public domain. Uh, some of the Sherlock Holmes stories are in that category. They, they, the copyright came back. Other countries, the U.S. is, I believe, the only country that has a post-publication period other countries generally say it's a period of time after the life of the author, so that, uh, for example, I think England is 50 years after the life of the author. I was, I was surprised the other day, for example, I wanted to use a story in an anthology that was published way back like in 1894, but the author lived till the, uh, till the late 1950s, or the, in fact, to the early 60s, so the work was still in copyright in the U.K., that's really fascinating. Now, uh, one of the things that I think is is really interesting about all this, the actual uh, legal statements, you put all this stuff online for us to look at. And, I, and that, was a, that was an interesting dis, uh, decision. Talk about making that decision to put it online because then you're kind of putting this out there where you're, I guess, making a target of yourself in a sense. Yes. Um, I, I, well, first of all, this case is not really... For me, I mean, it's not going to be. I'm a lawyer; I should know better. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's not going to be a profitable litigation. Um, I don't expect, at the end of the day, that I'm going to um, get a monetary reward that's going to exceed the cost of the litigation. I think the litigation is going to be uh, expensive, and I'm very happy that a number of people have already asked if they could donate to the, or contribute to the cause. And, and we've put some information up on the website. The website, by the way, is free-sherlock. That We've put information up about how people can contribute if they'd like to help defray the legal costs here. So it wasn't an economic decision. And, you know, I, I love the work of Conan Doyle. It's fantastic material. I, as I said, I'm very respectful of the existing copyrights. I, I didn't want people to misunderstand what the lawsuit was about. So I felt it was important to share this, and I solicited the views of, of some other scholars before we even filed the case. We, we had some collaboration from a couple other people who have spent a, a lot of volunteer energy looking into the copyright situation regarding the Sherlock Holmes stories for their own interests. 
So we, this has been a collaborative effort. Um, we're hopeful that the Stanford Fair Use Project is going to get involved. They've indicated they will, and uh, that would be nice as well. Talk about the implications of what happens if your suit does succeed or if it fails, and how that might affect other works that are in the same kind of nebulous situation or um, works that are approaching end of copyright life. Well, I, I think that it's more, I, I'm not sure that there could be more stories written about Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps there will be. Um, there's, a, there's already a multitude. There, once again, Sherlock Holmes seems to be having a, a crest, a spring, this has happened before in the history of uh, the, the stories. Um, it happened in the 70s, it happened in the 90s, and, and now probably set off by the Robert Downey films, the uh, BBC's tw- uh, Sherlock, CBS TV's Elementary, all of those sort of come into being. And there once again seems to be a lot of stories and a lot of people trying to jump on the bandwagon and do new material about Sherlock Holmes. But there's always been a tremendous amount of stories about Sherlock Holmes. There are 7,000 or more, we call them pastiches, stories written in the style of Conan Doyle that that ape the original stories. So this is really more about the principle than it is about wanting to see more Sherlock Holmes stories. I I think creators, I I respect the copyright law, but as a lawyer, I, I just was offended that um, here are people that were basically disregarding the law and using their economic muscle to bully people. I, I heard stories about uh, authors of little books, self-published works, who were being forced to pay license fees if they wanted to have their works sold on on Amazon or whatever. And it's just it just seems to me not right. Will it have an impact on other characters? Possibly. I understand that there is similar um, litigation regarding the Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs characters, Tarzan and and John Carter, Um, and certainly there are other characters that may have crept into the public domain. There's another field that this case does not directly affect, and that's trademark, and that is equally worrisome, a a new idea that somehow characters can be trademarked. The the Conan Doyle estate is seeking trademarks for Sherlock Holmes as well, that seems to me to be absurd, since the character has been used for um, more than 100 years in commerce in all kinds of advertisements and products, but nonetheless they're seeking it. That's, that's actually a bigger threat. What's the difference between a, a trademark and a copyright, just to give us... A... Well, the trademark, I mean, the, the principal difference for this point is that trademarks don't expire. As long as you keep using them, um, as long as you, the owner of the trademark, keep using it, it, it lasts in perpetuity. Coca-Cola, trademarks like that go on forever. There's no expiration period like copyright. So to me, it's a bit of a distortion of what the intellectual property laws are supposed to do to suddenly jump up and say, well, we own a trademark in that character. That application is suspended at the moment for complicated procedural reasons in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. At the time that it goes forward, I, I believe a number of people will oppose the issuance of the trademark because they want to continue to use the character of Sherlock Holmes, the Baker Street Regulars, and the like, without having to now suddenly pay a license for it, where in, in the past they've used it freely. 
Has anybody successfully trademarked a character? Mickey Mouse is trademarked, I believe, the, the specific image and, um, and look. The, the name and the image is trademarked, I believe. There are uh, other authors. I, I can't give you any examples, but I know, I've heard other authors have, have, in fact, applied for trademark for their characters. I know that uh, the last time I saw a Brian Lumley book, he's a science fiction and horror author. He's created a character uh, called the Necroscope, and I saw a little R after that Necroscope, and I would just go, well, that's odd. Doesn't, <laughs> so, doesn't uh, shock me. <laughs> um, I had understood, and I, I was trying to find some more information about it. There was a series of books, or at least a book, that my daughter, who was a school teacher, um, was telling me about that is... Uh, story about um, Harry Potter's father, James Potter and the something or others. And interestingly, the author had a disclaimer at the beginning that was attempting to sort of get around the trademark issue, um, saying this was not intended to be held out as a product of J.K. Rowling, etc. And I think that's what we will see in, if, if there are successful trademark applications. I don't know whether the Harry Potter characters have been trademarked, but it wouldn't surprise me. Now, your uh, website has a bunch of very interesting stuff. So take us through what we have here on the website. You have the actual uh, law, the actual... Um, Com the complaint and the The complaint exhibit. and the evidence, yeah. So tell us about um, writing up the complaint. I presume, was this something that you created or did you no, create it with your lawyers? My, my lawyer, Jonathan Kirsch, who's the lead counsel in the case, um, is, a, is a fine, fine intellectual property lawyer longtime friend and, and colleague. I mean, we worked together on a lot of other clients, um, and I trust his advice uh, implicitly. He's, he's just a superb lawyer in this field and has been practicing for many, many years. He crafted the complaint. I helped with some of the factual material, and I helped put together, for example, the part of the complaint that deals with what we call the, the Sherlock Holmes story elements. That's probably the most interesting part of the material that's up there. I've, I've tried to show... And it isn't a definitive list, but I've tried to show how the things, the characteristics that people associate with Sherlock Holmes can all be found in the public domain stories. That, that There are certainly a few characters, very, very minor characters, who appear in the copyrighted stories, but um, not the principal characteristics. Um, and that's actually an exhibit um, to the so-called court filings that we listed. I think it's Exhibit A. Exhibit A, yeah. This is really fascinating reading. If you're if you're at all interested in Sherlock Holmes, this is a great kind of like uh, cliff notes for the most important parts of Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and, and, I mean, and it's also, I mean, characters, for example, Professor Moriarty, the, the infamous Professor Moriarty. He actually appears as a character in only three stories. Um, he's mentioned in some other stories, but out of the the three stories in which he appears are all in the public domain. Uh, the mentions of Professor Moriarty are in, are in four stories. Only one of those four is in copyright. So, you know, it's it's pretty obvious to me that characters like Moriarty are in public domain. Sherlock Holmes, you know, yes, he featured he's a featured character in the ten stories in copyright. But when you think about things like his his tobacco use, his drug use, his, uh, his deductions, his disguise, uh, the magnifying glass, you know, and so on, these things all appear 
in the magnifying glass isn't really something that comes up in a lot of the stories. They all appear in various stories that are in public domain. In a study in Scarlet, which was the very first Sherlock Holmes story, uh, published in 1887, Conan Doyle did a very careful job of laying out the character. And, and honestly, he didn't really add very much to the character in terms of sort of new attributes over the years. Now, one of the things I, I thought was interesting, the, the possible implications of this are, will the people who are currently paying out License. licensing fees, will they have to continue to pay licensing fees if this if you win your suit? So, for example, are, are you going to essentially get CBS, PBS, BBC, <laughs> and I, Fox are, Pictures are off the hook? Back? I don't know. That's a really interesting question, and it's one... I'd like to think that those organizations will see the light of day and say, gee, we should probably support Klinger in his efforts. But um, I, I don't know the answer. I, I have not uh, tried to consider it. And I'm sure that they are now going to be thinking about that very question, um, about whether it actually profits them to uh, to win this case or whether they simply, if they if they were to get a new license, I don't know things, for example, I, I really don't know, did Warner Brothers get a license for multiple pictures, or have they been, is each film a separate license? I don't know these things. So. And on the other hand, too, they, within um, their own, they have their own copyrights on what they've created. Yes. So by mucking with this copyright, they are, they are also potentially shooting themselves somewhere out 100 years in an unknown future. Well, as I said, I don't think that this is a change in the law. We're, we're not asking the court to in any way deviate from what I believe to be the current law. Mm -hmm. um, we're simply asking the court to make it clear that the estate has been misapplying the law. They've been taking advantage of their economic situation to uh, obtain license fees when, in fact, under the law, they shouldn't be entitled to them. So I, I'm not sure that any of the, of the major creators should feel that this case is a threat to their own copyrights in, in any way. It's simply asking the court to say that, yes, the copyright laws already provide when it's over, it's over, and guess what, Conan Doyle State, it's over. Talk a little bit about the other exhibits. We have Exhibit B here, which are the stories that have not yet entered public domain. Right. And you say that by 2023, after that, we'll have everything uh, will be in public domain, yes. and unquestionably. Un unquestionably. But once again, that doesn't mean that if, if, they, if they were to get a trademark, you know, then presumably they would say, well, it doesn't matter that the story is in public domain. We have a trademark in the character. And so you still can't use Sherlock Holmes without paying us a license fee. And that would be in perpetuity, and every time we saw the name Sherlock Holmes, there'd be a little R after it. That's, that's, what they, that's what they're seeking, and they're seeking it in a very, very broad range of fields. Trademark, you have to, comp, you have to protect sort of product line by product line. So they're seeking trademark in the fields of books, movies, video games, uh, uh, soap products. Uh, virtually everything you can think of. Action figures? Yes, and... action figures and, and so on. Um, so 
this now you know the difference it, it, it's subtle here there's no doubt that someone who put out an action figure that looks like Robert Downey would be violating the rights of Warner Brothers that's different from saying because what does Sherlock Holmes look like uh, he looks like what uh, my, my imagination says he looks like when I read those stories. <laughs> there you go. So everybody's got their own picture. So right, I've got my own you, trademark. How do you trademark the look of Sherlock Holmes when everybody interprets it differently? In, in, in fact, uh, you know, there, there's actually some contradictions um, in a couple places about little tiny details of his of his appearance, um, and so people have argued. Uh, about whether this or that was so. Uh, Not so much about Sherlock Holmes, but some of the others. Uh, Dr. Watson, for example, you know, there's a mustache mentioned in one of the stories. Does he have it for the rest of his life? We don't know. Are the Sidney Paget illustrations that appeared with the original stories drawn from life? Well, some of us would like to think they were, but uh, that's that's another subject. Well, this is all very fascinating. Now, uh, when do, what's the timeline for the resolution of this? Well, we're hopeful that it will be short. Um, we, we are working hard on putting together our book, and um, we'd like to get it out. And that's why we went in and sought so-called declaratory relief. Um, this is, in theory at least, a speedy procedure. We're hoping that the case will proceed quickly, that there will be very little, if any, discovery that is, you know, actual testimony in advance of the hearing. We don't plan at this point to conduct any discovery. And we, we set the case in Illinois because that's where the agent, uh, John Lullenberg, that's where the office of the U.S. agent of the estate is. So we hope that way to cut out any arguments about venue and whether the trial should be in New York or in California. If, if I filed it here we'd waste time arguing about whether it could be heard here versus Illinois. So we're hoping for a a streamlined procedure. I don't really know that it'll be any time quick, though. I'm hoping it'll be this year, but I'm not even assured of that. To get get a better sense, you'd have to talk to the lawyers handling the case. I'm not a litigator. I'm I'm just a business lawyer. As a editor of Sherlock Holmes anthologies, as a scholar of Sherlock Holmes, talk about how your awareness of this copyright and this public domain issue has uh, affected your your selection, willingness of what you do, and even I think you know the the actual substance of what you do. I mean, if you're worried, if you're worried a little bit about Sherlock Holmes being in public domain, maybe you make him a little bit fatter or something. Say, well, this can't be the same Sherlock Holmes. Right. Well, so what it's done, it's it's now put, I mean, it's a very specific example here is our anthology in the company of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, we, we, we have not asked the authors to write new Sherlock Holmes stories. That was never the aim of this book. And I have to say that in general, I don't really read pastiche. I, I generally don't like pastiche. I think 99% of the people who write it miss the target. The, I, I'm always, I, I want the good old original Conan Doyle. But we asked authors to write stories that expressed their responses to the Sherlock Holmes stories. And looking at the first collection, some of them, they were an amazing collection of stories. Uh, it was fantastic. Sherlock. Some were, in fact, new 
Sherlock Holmes stories. One or two were actually stories about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson set in the right time period exploring interesting aspects of, that hadn't been filled in yet. Uh, for example, Tom Perry wrote a wonderful story about Holmes Watson and the McKinley assassination. Others moved Sherlock Holmes to the future. Um, they examined him in his old age. Neil Gaiman's brilliant story, A Case of Death and Honey, about Holmes uh, in his in his late ages. <clears throat> Some don't even mention Sherlock Holmes, but they were clearly inspired. You read the stories and you say, that's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the, a great story by my friend Lionel Chatwind, who uh, writes a story about a sergeant major of the Army and his sidekick, and they're very Holmesian and very, very Watsonian. Why should these kinds of stories be banned? Almost every mystery writer in the world has been inspired by the Sherlock Holmes stories. They, they know them, and the stories invented what we now think of as cliches in many cases. Uh, I always like to point out that in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the butler actually did it. Um, and and uh, there's a there's a story um, in which uh, there's a corpse with its face blown off by a shotgun blast. And of course, modern readers read this story and say, "Oh, well, we know, of course, that that body is not going to be the body of the person we think it is. It's going to turn out to be somebody else." And sure enough, it does. And Conan Doyle invented these cliches. So why shouldn't these ideas? be free to perpetuate. They should be. From my personal perspective, I'm not a fiction writer, so it hasn't affected my work so much, except in terms of what I'm able to collect and anthologize. And I, if, if people are being inspired by the work, then they ought to be free to write it. I've been speaking with Les Klinger, with Laurie King, he's got an upcoming anthology, we hope, called In the Company of Sherlock Holmes. He's the preeminent Sherlock Holmes scholar and the creator of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes. He's got a lawsuit against the Arthur Conan Doyle estate seeking to publish his new book because Sherlock Holmes, he asserts, is in the public domain. Thank you for joining me, Les. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.